Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Sean Michael Pigeon, Young Voices contributor and student at Yale University. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, CLT's first ever weekday remote proctored CLT is coming up on April 13th. Registration details can be found on our website, cltexam.com, and in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to Anchored, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Today, we have a very exciting guest, Sean Michael Pigeon. He's a senior at Yale University and recently was published in USA Today, an article that really blew up online and CLT wanted to be the first to bring you the the full story. Uh, The article is titled, Standardized Testing Isn't Racist. Sean, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Now, uh, you're currently a student at Yale, a senior, I believe, uh, one of America's most selective institutions. Uh, Tell us a bit about your journey to Yale. What was education like uh, growing up for you? I grew up in Texas. I grew up uh, at a relatively low-income family. Uh, It was a single-income household where my father worked at a local school, and that's where I went to school as well. I went to school um, at a private school where he taught uh, on a merit scholarship, and um, because of those metrics like GPA and because of things like standardized testing, I was able to test into certain programs at my school that allowed me to take advanced math courses. And that eventually led me all the way to, to Yale University just a few years later. And I'm, you know, incredibly blessed. But as I, as I kind of went and got immersed into those cultures there, um, there's been an, an increased movement towards vilifying those scores because of alleged uh, accusations of racism or classism. And that's what really uh, pushed me to try to uh, get that, get that voice heard. So, so this was bold, you know, to, to, to write an article, you know, as, as a young man, you're a senior in college in USA Today titled, you know, standardized testing isn't racist. It takes some courage. I want to, want to commend you for, for writing the article, but I want to ask who is saying this, where does this narrative come from? Uh, when, when did people start claiming that standardized testing just in general is racist? So it doesn't come up overnight, right? I mean, there's been a larger move towards this over time. So there are certain outlets like uh, think tanks like the Brookings Institute that in 2007 and 2008 started asking questions about why standardized testing was having different results based on class and based on race. So for instance, the bottom 20% of income earners in this country um, typically score the worst on standardized testing, whereas those that are in the wealthier uh, quintile score the highest. And that was raising some eyebrows throughout the nation. And then uh, moving forward throughout the last decade, liberal outlets like uh, Teen Vogue, the Huffington Post, and other esteemed academic institutions like Yale and Harvard and Princeton were moving to look at this through a racial lens of whether it decreases the chances for minorities to access higher institutions. And it's part of an ongoing movement 
that can be traced to a lot of these higher education programs that see any kind of injustice or any inequity in outcome as a necessary byproduct of unequal opportunities. And in the article, you argue uh, that that the attacks on standardized tests uh, are part of a broader assault uh, on academic sorting, is the way you put it. Uh, Can you elaborate on this? What did you mean by this? I I use the term academic sorting because there is a um, tendency towards eliminating not just the need for standardized testing, so not just the ACT, the, uh, the SAT, and the CLT, for instance, but also A through F grading. So for instance, in the University of California system, they're moving towards um, having a more holistic view of grading, which implies something to the effect of we're going to have recommendation letters, we're going to have um, addendums to grade point averages, um, sometimes even doing away with grade point averages. School boards across the country, so for instance, in Boston, um, there's a move towards not having what's called gifted math courses, because those are also considered to be unequitable. And that's I think also a bride product that can be seen back into the 60s and 70s where we started grade inflation, where a, an average student today probably scores around a B or B plus, where when my, my parents were going to school, like my, my dad was a C student and he was a very average student at the time too. So I think that academic sorting is sort of a, a broad category that I think is useful to describe many of these sorts of actions that are be, being taken across the nation. You know, I, I experienced this uh, teaching. I spent eight, eight or 10 years uh, you know, teaching in the public school system, and then in a couple, couple of years in, in Catholic school. I think C.S. Lewis was probably the one 20th century intellect who was most prophetic into the future of education. And he speaks about this in The Abolition of Man, um, that, that the, the, the goal of the future educator in some ways is not to uh, offend the pupil, that other students might be more diligent or smarter. smarter. That's not an exact quote. Um, but you're seeing this uh, across the board. Um, Sean, wh- where is this headed? Do you feel like uh, your article um, was well received? Do you feel like it's stopping and, and making people think a little bit about what we're doing? I, I do. So actually, there was two different um, high schoolers that that DM'd me, uh, direct messaged me after I got uh, the, the piece out. And one of them was very... Was, was very positive. It was a reaction that says, hey, I, I'm glad that, that you put this out. I'm glad that there's a certain optimistic tone to the piece. So it says that like people can work hard and people can do well with, through these metrics. And then another person emailed me and said that, that I was doing, that I was completely incorrect. And then we actually had a dialogue though. When that when it was very productive, we were able to talk about it. And uh, I think that there is a certain sense that this doesn't need to be a partisan issue. I don't think this needs to be a, a class issue or a race issue. I think that we can, you know, try to move beyond some of these markers because it's such a such an important thing for students and ch- children that um, hopefully I think that we can we can move past those sorts of barriers and and because we all want the same goal here. We all want to, to make sure yeah. that these, uh, opportunities are available and that we have a, a more meritocratic system. Yeah, so one of the things I was think, thinking about is, and I've read your article now a couple of times. Um, so Carl Brigham was a fellow uh, at Harvard who mm-hmm. started the SAT, of course, back at the turn of the 20th century, who, when people say standardized testing is inherently racist, uh, I want to nuance that and say, okay, Carl Brigham, yes, he was a racist. He clearly, the things he wrote are absolutely horrific. And he actually wanted to empirically demonstrate uh, the superiority of Caucasian minds over other people. But the actual import of the SAT in the 20s and especially in the 40s had the exact opposite effect, uh, is that it actually allowed college administrators to break down the system where only the well-connected, 
uh, could get into Harvard and Yale and to all the other Ivy Leagues. Uh, it, it created a more democratic system uh, overall. And it sounds like from your article, that, that's your concern is that by going to this soft, use this language of this, this move towards these soft indicators, that it would really be who's the most connected at the end of the day. Can you, can you speak into that? Yeah, I, you bring up the point that um, in the early 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, Harvard and Yale and Princeton were um, selecting a lot from big private high schools that were particularly for the well-connected, like Groton or Del mm-hmm. Barton or Phillips Exeter, these, these big private institutions that are incredibly expensive. And we see that still happening today. So for instance, Phillips Exeter has um, a 30% placement rate into the Ivy Leagues. Um, Del Barton in 2010 had 23 of their graduates go to an Ivy League or Ivy League adjacent school. Um, th- these institutions are incredibly well-connected. And that is um, not something that a person who's low income, like I was, would be able to, to be able to afford, be able to go to. Um, we literally see just a few years ago, actually, um, families were busted for bribing admissions officers at USC and at Yale um, into creating fake slots at lacrosse leagues or at soccer programs in order to be able to get their kids into these elite institutions. Um, it's it's sort of a natural urge of of the parental instinct. And I'm not criticizing that necessarily that instinct, but we do need to operate and construct our society and the way in which we handle admissions to understand that these kinds of things um, are likely to happen if we rely solely on sort of soft metrics. Yeah. Um, now, Sean, I don't want to press my luck too much here because you're a current student. We wouldn't want you to say anything you shouldn't say uh, as a current student at Yale. Um, but but what is the atmosphere on campus like? I mean, it, it's been a, a historic year nationally with conversations about things regarding race and equity. Um, how are you received as an educational conservative on campus? Well, I, I would have to say that some the pandemic has sort of muted some of those um some of those demonstrations, given the fact that I haven't been on campus in, in almost over a year. So in, in that way, the, the response has been muted because people quite literally can't congregate. Although I will say that that the tenor over the last few years has been one that is trying to have a, a reckoning with a race in America. I, I think that there are um, a, a lot of good things and a lot of good takeaways to have from that. The difficulty is when those intentions get morphed into what I believe is um, actually going to hurt people from being able to access the kind of equal opportunities that I think that both conservatives and moderates and liberals all want, which is we want people to be able to work hard and to do well. Um, The question is, how do we get there? You mentioned one state in particular in your article when you're referencing math. I actually grew up in Oregon. Uh, and as someone who dearly loves the state, I'm a bit skeptical about some of the stuff that comes out of Oregon. Uh, and of course, it was the first state to make this really wild claim that math, math is inherently racist, which to me sounds like oxygen or air is inherently racist. I mean, that reality itself. I mean, humans didn't create math or order in the universe. We observe it and these things exist. Um, is there a, a limiting principle in, in this movement uh, that, that seems to want to call more and more uh, things racist, and, and what is the actual impact long-term on people of color uh, and uh, and the poor? Well, it is, it is, I think, emblematic of the fact that there isn't a clear limiting principle to this 
thought process that something like that can be labeled as uh, problematic. Let's just say that. Um, however, I, I would say that this actually goes to show how these kind of standardized testing um, metrics that we're currently using aren't necessarily culturally biased because what we are seeing in the actual raw data is that the math sections are what's primarily doing the majority of the sorting. So it's not their uh, cultural bias within the reading sections. It's not the cultural bias within the vocabulary sections that is the primary driver of these disparities. And we have also observed, though, that in Florida, that kids that have um, a blind testing into math and into verbal different categories, so like, as in gifted learners or gifted writers or gifted math students, um, we actually see that the people who are Hispanic and Black actually double in number in those sorts of programs. So while there are some unequal sorting effects, it doesn't have to be that way. And it doesn't, we, we don't have to, to exclusively say that, well, because some people aren't doing as well that we should just scrap the whole thing because there are people that are doing well in these metrics that would be hurt by not allowing them to showcase their gifts. Hmm. You know, I, I'm thinking about uh, my first three years out of college, I taught in inner city New York. I worked at a, a school that was hundred percent minority students and there were a lot of very well-meaning. I believe that. I think they were well-meaning uh, young college graduates, uh, far, far left of center who would come in um, and they would teach these minority students who had everything stacked against them, uh, that they were growing up in a country that was was profoundly unfair, systematically racist, um, that everything was stacked against them. What was so interesting, though, is that it was the teachers who grew up in that neighborhood who were the ones saying, stop saying that. Mm -hmm. This is not what these students need to hear right now. What they need to hear is that nothing can hold them back. They can do anything they put their mind to. C can you... Can you speak a little bit about the way, uh, and I, I believe this, I think for a lot of people, there's genuine concern about disparity, uh, but it, it's being a, applied in a way that perhaps could create more disparity long-term. Uh, I wonder if you had any final thoughts on that. I, I, I do think that eliminating metrics that are available and reachable does lead to a sort of fatalism in these kind of communities, because in communities where we already know that people from Exeter or people from highly people that are going to summer in Rome, for instance, are going to are going to be able to do well at whatever university that, that, that they go to. So having metrics that are clearly defined and we're able to say, hey, if you do well in these particular tests or do well in your school, that you actually can increase your lot in life. I think that's actually a really powerful message for people. It was a powerful message for me. And I don't think I'm the only one that that message resonated with. And I think it's the best way also of setting a good example. That way people can look up and say, hey, people before me did this, and this is how they did it. And that's how we can kind of create a positive feedback loop as opposed to a negative feedback loop, where people see mentors and they see their, their seniors and when they're a freshman go off and do good things because they studied hard and because these particular tests help them later on. That's how we create a real lasting cultural change. Sean, that's great. Um, the, the, the part of the Anchored podcast, I always look forward to the most. Uh, we talk a lot about books here. Uh, CLT is a, is a reading culture. Um, wondering if maybe during your time at Yale or perhaps just uh, on your own, if there's been uh, one book uh, as a young man that's been uh, particularly formative uh, to you. And, you know, one of the cool things that we've learned recently about the Anchored podcast is that, is that more and more teachers actually assign it as homework. 
And so there's a number of high school kids who are listening to this podcast right now. Uh, what would you say to them in particular as a, you may be, actually, you're our youngest guest, I believe. So congrats on that, by the way. Um, well, what would you, what would you tell them to read? Well, um, I will say that I'm working, uh, I'm a history major as well as a political science major, and I am working right now on Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes. Um, I'm, I'm love the book and I'm particularly revisiting him as a Calvinist theologian and his writings on theology in books three and four. Um, so I'm situating him within the reformed tradition, um, specifically looking, looking at the way in which the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin uh, influence the materialist determinist determinism of Hobbes in the in the 1600s. And so I would I would say that Leviathan is one of the books that I read when I was um, in, in high school, it got me interested in political theory, got me interested in philosophy. So I, I would certainly recommend it to, to anybody that's looking. Um, there's also great translations available. There's a lot of commentaries. So a person can read like an introductory book and it's very fun. It's a good read. So um, in that sense, I, I would say that, you know, that's a great place to start. It also is one of the most important works, I think, in the, in the Western tradition. So, so certainly, uh, certainly a good buy. I, Sean, I can't even tell you how, how encouraged. I, we're talking to a student at Yale and you're talking about John Calvin and reading Hobbes' Leviathan, uh, that, that's tremendously encouraging and exciting. Uh, thrilled to be with you today. Uh, thanks a ton for your time and all the best. Uh, and and what, Sean, what, what is next for you after graduation? Do you know what you're going to be doing a year from now? Um, well, for this summer, I will be working at, at National Review. And so I, I hope to continue to be a, a voice for these kinds of efforts in the future. So um, that's what that looks like for me. John, have a great day, sir. You too. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week.